Let's be honest. Life's hard sometimes. We get discouraged, struggle in our faith, and it's easy to feel alone. Despite how you might feel sometimes, know that God's got your back. And so do we. Vision's prayer line team are ready to pray for whatever you're going through. Text your prayer request to 0401 132 888 and we will be praying for you. Or click prayerline at vision.org.au. That's 0401 132 888 or vision.org.au. It's another way Vision is helping you look to God daily. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. In the state of Andhra Pradesh, as I understand it, there's something in the vicinity of 100 million people. Uh, Of course, 1.2 billion, the entire population of India. But uh, you've got a wonderful mission work that's happening there. Before we get into talking any about those sorts of things, you travel the world. uh, You spend some time in Australia. You spend some time in the United States. You're on your way to the UK shortly. You speak at conferences and churches and anyone, I guess, who's who's ready to listen about what it is to have a passion for missions to India. Uh, Tell us about your travels. Um, I have the opportunity to represent Christ for India in UK and in Germany and in Switzerland and, of course, in Australia and in America. And like a, anyone that will listen about missions, I'm happy to, whether they're two or three in a small home group or if it's a the businessman's fellowship. Uh, my background is in the business and the marketplace, so I, I relate very well in the marketplace ministry, and that's where I see a lot of the new growth in the mission field. A part of your ministry there in India is that you actually have a theological seminary and you have graduates coming right through in all different levels, right up to PhD level. Uh, that there is a, There's a real commitment there to an understanding of what it is to reach out in a missionary way into your nation. Yes, we believe that we want to train leadership and to be able to multiply the vision to reach the 1.2 billion people. So we have a heart to train these young men and women who have a calling to serve but need the equipment and to be trained and taught. So they come to our campus. They live with us for approximately three years for a bachelor's in theology, and if they want to continue, they have a master's, and we also do Ph.D. accredited by ATA. And so it is a uh, accreditation a process that we went through for many years. So we have a great faculty on team. We have a great resource, 40,000-volume library on campus. Um, And the name of it is COTR, Church on the Rock Theological Seminary. Jameson, I don't want to leave our listeners out of our conversation and wanting to invite them into our conversation and opening our talkback lines. 1-800-316-316 if you'd like to join our conversation today. We are going to talk about missions uh, over this hour and our special guest, uh, the Reverend Jameson Titus, uh, who heads up Christ for India. We were today going to be talking to another missionary giant, and uh, he was Eddie Arthur. We weren't able to get a hold of Eddie Arthur today, but throughout the morning I've been saying that there is a changing face of world missions uh, where today things have changed so much that maids and taxi drivers are the new faces of the missionary movement. And that's one of the things that we were going to be talking uh, with our original guest about. But, uh, Jamison, I know that this is something of your heartbeat as well, the adjustment that people have to make uh, when pursuing a 
a mission, as a missionary, uh, you have to fit into all sorts of different contexts. You're also familiar with this idea of the changing face of world missions. Maids and taxi drivers, they are the new missionaries. That is correct. Even in India, we have many young men and women who go abroad to the Middle East for jobs, and those jobs allow them to be in people's homes that we as ministers would never have the opportunity to be. And so they have the capacity to uh, bond with the family, to live their faith in that particular environment, and to be able to be a witness in the dark. When you've got graduates from your seminary in India, uh, I imagine they're not all going out with a full-time wage as a pastor. I imagine that there's something happening in the heart of graduates uh, from your seminary uh, where they've got to go and find their own way. They've perhaps got to go with their degree or their doctorate uh, and then find their way into a society which is not always as welcoming to Christians. But what sort of uh, professions, what sort of uh, vocations do people uh, who are graduates from your seminary take when they are actually moving into areas in India? They do believe it's a faith ministry, and we believe that God would provide all our resources that we need. And so a lot of the graduates actually go pioneer church planning. Many of those will become pastors. Many will be evangelists. Many will go into the academic field and become teachers in other Bible colleges, start Bible colleges. Again, we believe in multiplication, discipleship. We need to have people that are trained to be able to share the gospel, to have the correct teachings, and not to have some uh, weird doctrines and things that are prominent in some villages. So we want to be able to have them equipped. So they have different um, abilities to go and, and pioneer new works, start ministries in different parts of India. There's still many different parts of the world that still don't have uh, a mission work that's being planted in those particular villages. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson, a biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. Good to have you along with us. It's Neil with you, 2020, and we are talking about missions. And we're talking about the changing face of missions. Our guest this hour is the leader of Christ for India, travels the world addressing conferences and talking to groups about India, about the mission that's going on there, Christ for India. The Reverend Jamison P. Titus is our guest. Jamison, one of the big things, if we talk about the changing face of mission movements around the world, uh, is this idea of rich countries and poor countries. Uh, The idea that rich countries send missionaries to poor countries, this is changing quite dynamically. And you've mentioned that there are people who are graduating from your seminary in India and they're actually going off into places like the Middle East. Is this something that is a trend that you've noticed around the world? Yes, it is. Even in South America, there's a lot of missionaries from South America that are now coming to the Middle East. There's um, people from Philippines, China coming out. Uh, actually, we have uh, Indian students going to America to be missionaries. We have uh, students coming to Australia to be a missionary. And so that whole dynamics of the old model is changing radically within the world as missions is changing. Of course, we're familiar with the Apostle Paul from the Bible as a missionary, and sometimes he's referred to as a tent maker, a tent maker because he was making tents while he was doing missionary work, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And this idea of being a tent maker, and as we were reflecting on the idea of the changing face of missions and where there are maids, there are taxi drivers who are going to other countries and they're planting churches, uh, this idea of a tent maker, somehow rather uh, in our Western thinking, is that uh, somebody supports us from home and we go and do the missionary work. 
tent maker missions is very important as an an element of what's happening with the change. Yes, it is. We we believe that that in the old teachings, it was when you're a minister, you didn't do anything else other than minister. But you're ministering to people that are already in your church and your four walls. When you go outside into the marketplace in the business world, you're ministering to people that have not had that same opportunity to hear the gospel in a, uh, a church setting. And so we we want our young people to engage in the marketplace, become involved in the engineering, involved in real estate, involved in the retail businesses. They have an avenue to meet many new people that they otherwise would never have the exposure to. And so I believe even for mission organizations like us, our next strategy is to become self-funding, to have businesses that the ministry will benefit from as a financial resource and have different income streams. I see that as I travel. Many new churches and many new mission agencies are now having different wings of their ministry that their primary service is to be engaged in the marketplace, again, to be able to share the gospel of the Great Commission. In return, they also do financing so that it can finance and fund the missions and the and the programs that they're doing. How do you deal with people who might have uh, this uh, criticism that has been leveled at the church at different times uh, when there is this joint connection between doing business to be uh, self-sustaining and actually pursuing this ministry of the gospel and the, the idea that if you're a gospel minister, you're a missionary, somehow or other doing this business on the side uh, might sort of get your hands a little bit dirty. How do you actually br- bring those two together, merge those two ideas? There, is, there are two sides and there's always a, a, um, a clash, you would say, uh, between some of the clashes between the groups. But we want that new, even in, like you mentioned, uh, Apostle Paul. And so that is, it is biblical, and, and somehow we in the flesh have put this uh, stereotype that says if you're involved in missions, you can only do this. And again, there, there are extremes where a ministry may go off a tangent and do something that's not their core mission statement. But again, it has to be the leadership of those organizations that has to make sure that they have a good balance between the two. And, of course, the onus then on the ministries involved in the business to make sure that everything's happening with integrity because you don't want to bring the mission into any level of disrepute. That is correct. And uh, as a businessman, you want to be an ethical businessman. In in India in particular, uh, young Christian families did not encourage their children to go into the business field or in the marketplace. They needed to become a nurse, a teacher, a doctor, become a civil servant because Business people traditionally have this uh, stereotype of being unethical, being world, uh, you know, drinking the whole worldly influences. And so they didn't want their children to go into the marketplace. But that is such a great mission field. So, Jamison, what sort of businesses do people who are graduates from your seminary, uh, I mean, if those are ones that are are looking to actually become self-sufficient, self-sustaining with their mission role, uh, what sort of businesses do they look to actually begin in, in India? Some of them have gone into the educational side where there is a huge industry in India for education. So some of them are now coaching, tutoring, things that they can do that God's given them a gift for, English uh, teaching in English as as a uh, again a source of income to be able to teach young people. Um, some have gone into software development. Some have gone into the marketplace and the investment and real estate development. Um, many have gone into different areas of ministry where they uh, also have a a source of income and they're able to do ministry at the same side. <laughs> 
And of course, it wouldn't be true to say that everyone in India is poor. In fact, there are a lot of, while there is widespread poverty in India, not to downplay that or minimise that in any way because that's such an important area for Christian ministries to focus on, uh, there are a lot of, there's a lot of wealth in India as well. So the idea of uh, starting business from a Christian foundation because of the level of business that is on the increase in India is one of those uh, wonderful nations uh, that some might say uh, really emerging the emerging middle class uh, this makes a wonderful opportunity to do something with a self-sustaining uh, business focus yes we, we agree there is funds there is money in India and there's resources in India but those resources are not in Christian believers hands majority of them belong in the Hindus and the Muslim uh, background where they have the businesses they traditionally have been involved in the real estate development in the retail development and all the businesses Christians have traditionally come from the lower caste, the dialects, the untouchables. So as a, as a history, they have not been the most educated, the most opportune, the one that had the, my father was a businessman, my grandfather was a businessman, so I'm now doing the family business. That tradition has not traditionally been in the Christian community. So to change that thought process of a Christian family to say, it's okay to encourage your son or daughter to go into the marketplace, and that is just as a viable ministry as going into a seminary or Bible college. That thought process has to change before the Christian community can have some of the resources there. And when the majority of those bigger resources are in the hands of uh, the Hindus uh, and the Muslims in India, uh, how much a disadvantage does that place uh, on Christians in India who are trying to get that foothold? Because it's a little more difficult for Christians to succeed in business because they're Christians in India. That is correct. With some of the persecution they are, again, mistreated. They have uh, other things that other people will do. Uh, example is uh, special gifts uh, to officials to get your business license, to get things processed. So the other thing is the learning curve. So as a Christian coming in to start up a new business, they need to be equipped to be able to know the ropes, whereas another family may already have that history with them, being their forefathers had businesses, so the whole family is a business environment which is not, in the, again, traditionally in the Christian uh, community now. With your theological college, is business a part of, uh, of what you would teach uh, students, or does it become something that is uh, nurtured and, uh, and there's uh, mentors on the side? How does that sort of fit in with the way that uh, your graduates are coming out of your seminary? We're encouraging them to do um, more self-support programs as they start their ministry, Example, having a cow, you know, having dairy farm, having a farm, some of the things that can be self-support, having rice paddies that the ministry owns that can produce rice without having to purchase rice, having solar panels to be able to have energy without having to pay the government for the electric bill. So there's a lot of things that we're encouraging students from the beginning to start with that, that in mind rather than 20 years later, 30 years later saying, oh, we need an income stream to, to do the programs that we want to do for missions. Sometimes we hear of that initiative, uh, microfinance, the ability to get people uh, up and operating and uh, self-sufficient financially. Uh, is that a part of the way that uh, a lot of Indian uh, Christians are thinking about how they'll actually pursue a ministry career? Some start off with the small, uh, like buy a cow, buy a goat, uh, the pigs, the whole thing. Um, it is on a smaller scale. Uh, so if you were in, in Australia, you would think if you're starting a business, you would start off on normally on a bigger level rather than as a what we would say as a mom-and-pop shop or a small 
uh, entry level. So a lot of the microfinancing is helping individual families, but it's not creating the wealth that you can be a great blessing back to the community. Those programs are helping that individual family survive and to be able to be a blessing to that local family. So we, we're trying to encourage people to do something on a bigger uh, scale. Talking about the changing face of world mission, and this is one of the passions that you like to talk about, Jamison. Uh, one of those things that is changing, and uh, people who have been a Christian for a long time might remember uh, when a missionary would arrive and you'd have a missionary guest at your local church and they'd be a real novelty and everybody would turn out and uh, it was all a, a really big uh, curiosity to find out what was going on in other nations. But even that is changing, and the novelty factor is in some ways worn off. What are your thoughts? I can remember my dad going to Wales and Pastor Michael's son Gavin, after service, when dad would take a nap into their living room, he would get all of his neighborhood friends to come through their house, and he would charge 25 cents for them to come see the Indian and come through the front door and go through the back door. <laughs> and my dad used to share that with me, and, and Gavin, of course, now he's a young man, and uh, he shares that when your my father was there. So now with social media, imagine everyone has their own friend in India, and they're right here in Sydney or Brisbane on the Gold Coast, and uh, they're in Australia, but they have a direct contact either on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, and, and so the social media has made the world so small that everyone has a friend in Africa, Philippines, China, different countries. So that novelty of having the local missionary from your church come once a year to give a report and everybody comes out of the woodworks to see them, that sort of changed, you know, again. So uh, the social media has made a big impact in the changing of the missions. And this is an interesting flow on from that because in a lot of churches they might have, say, a missions Sunday once a month. And that's a pretty normal sort of a thing, isn't it? But what you're saying when you talk about social media and the changes that's having to the face of world missions, uh, when you're following a person that you're supporting in mission on social media, uh, it's Mission Sunday every Sunday, and it's Missions Sunday, it's Missions Day every day of the of the week. That's right. You have that capacity to be in instant communication with your missionaries around the world because of the social media. Anything that happens, it's instant time now, whereas before you got this report once a year or maybe two times a year if you were lucky, again, through post and everything else. But now the, the technology has really done well, and the mission missionaries and mission organizations that are capitalizing on this capacity to have instant communication with their partners, it's a great thing. So when we hear wonderful stories about the growth of missionary endeavor in uh, in continents like South America and uh, in the continent of Africa, uh, we are actually seeing a, a support which has continued to grow and almost accelerating the growth of missions because people in the wealthier, perhaps Western nations or wealthier nations around the world have had this capacity to connect directly with missionaries in these uh, places which are often uh, stricken by poverty. But there's not only the connection that comes from outside and perhaps the prayer that comes along, but also the financial support that can flow into the hands of those missionaries to make a real difference. That is correct. So the social media has helped do that. But at the same time, you need to be, as, as, a, as a good steward of God's resources, you also need to be careful in who you meet online, uh, just like the, the guidelines they give you here in, in Australia. Uh, you need to be careful. You need to have to be able to, you know, my father always used to say, investigate before you invest. And so you need to know your missionary and know who the people you are that you're dealing with, whatever country they're in. 
That's an interesting point because uh, I guess even Christian Mission is not immune from the idea that there may be scammers uh, who might be uh, charlatans uh, operating under the under the guise of being a missionary but actually just receiving money. Yes, there there are a few cases. And again, we need to be wise in what we do and how we invest in the in the world missions that we do, depending on even being in countries. And, of course, that comes down to the value of having your local church that has personal contact with missionaries uh, so that when you are linked with them, when you perhaps give a offering with your mission offering uh, on that once a month uh, Sunday, that it's an important thing that you know and that you have confidence, that you have trust that the money that you are using is actually getting into the hands of those missionaries. That is correct. That's why we encourage uh, teams to come and to see the work firsthand, what God is doing through their ministry and what your investment is doing, and and if it's being fruitful and multiplying. Uh, Let's come back to your backyard in India, because in India, uh, the the religion, if you call it that, uh, the faith of Christians is really in the, or it tends to be, in the poorer uh, people in India. The richer people in India appear to be, and I'm sure this is, uh, I'm sure there are exceptions, but uh, you've got uh, Hindus and you've got Muslims in India, and then you've got Christians who tend to be in the poorer uh, classes of people. Uh, how do you, how do you uh, anticipate the future will begin to unfold uh, with Christian missionary endeavor, given that work amongst the poorer classes? The, the challenge, again, is to, with India, with one point, almost 1.3 billion people and will supersede China in a few years, is that 80% of the population are claimed to be Hindus. About 12% of the population claim to be Muslims. And then you have a 4% to 6% in the Christian community. If you look online with the government numbers, it's like 2%. But we in the Christian community think it's at maybe closer to 4 to 4% to 6%. So there is a huge... Uh, a harvest field there. Now, traditionally, Christianity has been reaching the low-class people, the untouchables, the dialects. They were able to change because of the caste system. Again, in Christianity, we believe everyone is created equal. God created us in his image. We're all equal. But in the Hindu system, there is a caste system, meaning there's levels of uh, three main levels, and within those levels, there's many levels. And so to change from one level to another is not possible unless you uh, pass away and you come back in your next life and you move up levels that way. But in Christianity, we're all created equal. So the young, the people that were traditionally reached were the low, untouchable people. So Christianity became a Christian religion of the poor people. So if you're a Hindu well-to-do and a Christian comes to share the faith with them, they traditionally might say, why do I want to become a believer and follow your Jesus? Because you're so poor, you don't have anything. God, and my, quote, God has given me all of these. And people are very, uh, they're emotional and uh, they are uh, oftentimes materially minded. And the idea that truth must be with where the money is, uh, that's something that we're warned against in the scriptures. And uh, it can be quite deceptive, can't it, to, uh, to think that if someone's driving the nice car and wearing the nice clothes, they must have the right religion. They must be the holders of the truth. Uh, because that's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is about Jesus Christ, and uh, and uh, this whole rich and poor assessment is a, is a difficult one. Yeah, it is, especially from a country that has so much poverty and so much, uh, you know, so that that vastness is there. Say, when you have a ten percent of the population controlling the ninety percent of the population because of this caste system. 
Tell me about the caste system because uh, here in Australia we have uh, a, a system in our government which uh, we would, well, I would argue would be an overhang from our, our Christian heritage that has come to us uh, right from the very beginning after, you know, when our first fleet arrived, it, it came with a Christian flavour to everything that happened in Australia. And with the establishment of our government, uh, we have a prime minister and ministers in our parliament uh, who are servants of the people. Uh, we even call our public service uh, servants, public servants. So we don't call them just bureaucrats of the government, but they're public servants. They're there to serve the people uh, and, and oftentimes people who are vulnerable and people are at the lower end. So it's the rich that serve the poor. It's different under a Hindu system. It is in one way, but, you know, the world's largest democratic country in the world, people traditionally think it's America, but it's actually India. You know, we have the democratic process. We have elections. So the people are elected to serve the the, low, the people, but at the same time, that, that status of what um, class you come from allow you to do things. Uh, in the cities, that caste system is, is being broken down. Example, we have young people that are now working in multinational companies based on their talents, not based on their name or their uh, caste the companies are hiring. So in a, in a work setting, we may have Hindus, Christians, Muslims all working together on a 10- or 12-hour work shift. So, again, there's interaction. Maybe we have a break together. We may go out for a meal together afterwards. So some of those traditional caste and the things are being broken down in the major cities. But in a typical village that we deal in, they're cocooned. They don't have that influences of outside because they're a homogeneous group. And so that group doesn't have other people coming in. So we still have the the caste system being uh, influenced and in, in sharing the gospel in that, in that is you have to have that opportunity to be able to do so. Life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Well, we're talking about the changing face of world missions. You'll be appreciative of Jesus telling the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, making disciples. And we're talking about missions today because missions happens uh, not just overseas, but it happens locally too. It happens in our own communities. Our guest this hour talking through these sorts of issues, and you're invited to be a part of our conversation, uh, the Reverend Jamison Titus, who is the President of Christ for India. Uh, Jamison, uh, when it comes to India, you've got, you're talking missions and uh, you've even got people who are graduates from your seminary. Uh, they're going uh, internationally, but I guess the the biggest focus in India is going to be focusing on those uh, local, those community, those interstate missions, because so many in India have not even heard the name of Jesus. That is correct. There's so many more villages that need a, a witness there. You know, it's not the way it is in the West where you have many Christians, and if you're starting a new church work, you send out an advertisement and a postcard in the mail or in the post, and the next thing is you have people coming. In India, when these young men and women go out to pioneer these areas, they're the only believers in that community until God gives them new souls that they can minister to, to serve, to pray for. And God does miracles, things in that area that they're in that gives them favor, and they're the first believers in that particular village. And that's how that cell churches work. 
Uh, tell me about the danger of uh, missions in India. Uh, in years gone by, uh, things were considered uh, to be less dangerous, people more accepting. Uh, there are some changes on the missionary front now because uh, because uh, uh, issues to do with uh, rising Hindu nationalism, uh, issues to do with uh, uh, Islamic uh, influence. How does the ordinary Christian missionary or ministries going out to plant a church in a village, how are they received these days? Is it dangerous? It is. I think in the last 24 months since we've had this new government in power, there has been more strategic persecution uh, focused at Christian communities and Christian organizations. 13,000 organizations in the last 24 months have been shut down in India. And due to uh, certain forms not being properly filled or certain things that weren't ticked in the tick box uh, is giving the government the power to shut down organizations. And so in the past, we still have the physical persecution where villages get together and they ask the pastor to leave in a, in a, um, some, in a, in a nice way, mostly not in a nice way. We have this huge Indian nationalism coming into power in the last 24 months. Uh, we've had um, incidents of people that um, maybe accidentally abused a cow or in this just a few weeks back we had the seven family members who were uh, taking the leather off of a dead cow already and the community came and they actually tied them to cars and they beat them physically and there was a huge uproar about this you know the cow worship and the things so the government has uh, strategically done new things to where they're actually stopping organizations from social work, uh, taking their finances, and any organizations that receive help from abroad, they're even being more scrutinized more now, getting audits done and things that are uh, that weren't done in the past, say, 10 years or 20 years. With this rise of nationalism in India, and you mentioned those stories and some of those uh, uh, quite uh, disturbing stories, uh, typically as Christians we would see any sort of dispute resolved in the courts uh, under the rule of law. Uh, and we've hear, we've heard stories, I guess, uh, from certainly in the Middle East, where uh, where you've got this sort of vigilantism uh, in Islam, where if the courts uh, make a decision that the people don't think is right, the people take the law into their own hands uh, because they know what uh, the Sharia law might mean, and so therefore uh, they go and uh, take the law into their own hands. And as you say, there's a, there's a punishment for someone who is perceived uh, to have broken the law. Uh, this sort of vigilantism, this is something that you're dealing with in India as well. That is correct. In different pockets of India, the people are facing this on a day-to-day basis. In the West, we don't really understand. We may see a small snippet on BBC or the World News, but this is day-to-day missions. This is real. This is what happens in the field. And let me just come back to the way you reach a nation as big as India. Uh, 1.2, heading for 1.3 billion people. Uh, Before long, it'll, as you say, overtake China as uh, the most populous nation on the face of the earth. You have to be able to engage media uh, in ways that are uh, new technology focused, uh, in ways that will reach out to people and uh, touch their lives wherever they are. I know this has been a part of your dream in your seminary uh, to actually get media uh, off the ground uh, by way of Christian broadcasting. Uh, How are things going with your developments there? Uh, By God's grace, we finished the building. We had a small setback with our cyclone hood hood that came and removed the first floor. 
We're in the process of getting that completed. Uh, we've got the TV station, the radio station, as far as the equipment being purchased as we speak. And Lord willing, by November, we'll be able to turn the switch on. And so we're very excited about this. This particular thing, you know, many of our listeners may have heard of Bollywood. Yep. You know, Bollywood is very popular in the West. But in the Christian community, we're not using that media stream as well as we should be. And so we're wanting to train our seminary students to be on TV, to use the radio, to use the music as a way of sharing their faith and using the same airwaves that everyone else is using. And so this is what we want to do. We'll be one of the first uh, seminaries there to be using this to train our young people so that as they leave, they have an idea how it works, how they can use it. We have a graduate of ours, uh, Pastor Stephen, who's in Hyderabad. He is, he's on five TV stations, and he's preaching the gospel, and it's going out. He has a huge uh, ability to, to uh, be able to reach a lot of people that he, on an individual basis, would never have that opportunity. So there are some challenges for getting those things up and functioning and being effective and bearing fruit. Uh, Let me uh, just ask you about how listeners to our conversation could be connecting with you because we talked about one of the changing faces of world missions today being the development of social media. And you said, well, used to be a novelty. The missionary would come to your church and that was a novelty when that happened. Uh, These days, you can have that missionary as your friend on Facebook. You can follow them on Twitter. Uh, How would people actually follow you, uh, Jameson? I guess, uh, is there a a way that people listening to our conversation might be able to connect with you and uh, perhaps even be supportive of your work? Yes, we have a home base in Sydney. Dr. Gladwin and Helen Turner uh, have been great ministry friends from 1984 with my mom and dad, and they're still helping us uh, financially and for uh, processing any gifts. 100% of the donations that come through Australia actually make it to India. And uh, we have a website, ChristForIndia.org, and uh, they can reach us through the website, through email. And uh, there's many different things that they can do. You know, we always say you can pray for us and pray for all your missionaries around the world. You can come and serve on the campus if you have a gift, uh, example, for the new media center. We're looking for people that have a talent that can come and help us create programs to be able to train our trainers, to use the media, to use the music, to use the TV. So if you have a gifting that has in the media industry, we would love to have you come, granted that you're able to come. Uh, If you're not able to come, of course, we always need resourcing and finances to buy some of the equipment and to support some of the work that's in the field. And, uh, And so there's many different ways that you can come and help this ministry. And to say that your city is Vishakapatnam and uh, in the state of Andhra Pradesh, uh, how big is Vishakapatnam? Is it how, by way of, uh, you know, we talk about cities. A lot of our listeners might never have heard of it before. Uh, wh- how big is uh, that city? Approximately between three and four million people, and we're considered a small city. We're not, we don't make the tier one cities. But our state had gone through recently a state split. So our state was split into two a west and an east, and we're still on the east side. The new state is called Telangana, and we're Hyderabad. Many of you have heard of Hyderabad, where a lot of the technology companies are. That city now is in the new state called Telangana. And so uh, Vishagapatnam, we're actually about uh, 20 kilometers north of Vishagapatnam in a small community called Bimiliputnam, and so that's where we really are. Well, if you don't have uh, someone on your Facebook from India, here's your opportunity. I'll give you the website. It's www.christforindia.org. 
And uh, our guest has been James uh, Jamison uh, Titus. He's the president of Christ for India. Jamison, great getting your insights today. Thanks so much for being with us on 2020. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.